Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Critical race theory is everywhere. It's rapidly becoming the new orthodoxy in America's public institutions, and yet most Americans have no idea where it comes from and what kind of society it envisions. Sometimes it's directly labeled critical race theory, but it's usually deployed under a series of euphemisms, such as equity, social justice, diversity and inclusion, and culturally responsive teaching. This is deliberate. The critical race theorists are masters of language construction and realize that neo-Marxism would be a hard sell to the American public. But equity is soft, persuasive, non-threatening, and easily confused with the American principle of equality. But the distinction between these two words, equality and equity, is vast and crucially important. Equality is the idea that was first proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, consecrated in blood during the Civil War, and codified into law with the 14th and 15th Amendments, and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of the mid-1960s. But the critical race theorists explicitly reject this vision, arguing that equality under the law is camouflage for white supremacy, patriarchy, and naked racial oppression. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. What you just heard is American conservative activist Christopher Rufo speaking in his new 18-minute film on critical race theory. The creators and defenders of critical race theory, or CRT as it's often known, describe it as a legal and academic movement aimed at critically examining the many ways in which racism manifests with a view toward pushing beyond traditionally liberal colorblind laws and solutions. It's been around since the 1970s, but in the wake of Black Lives Matter, CRT has suddenly become a lot more prominent in progressive activism and academia. And while many conservatives have pushed back on CRT throughout the years, basically accusing its champions of using postmodern language to justify reverse racism, no one has pushed back quite as hard as Christopher Rufo. As a speaker, media personality, web pundit, and now filmmaker, he has railed hard against CRT and called for efforts to ban its inclusion in public school curricula. Last year, when then-President Donald Trump took action to block CRT-based training materials from being used in federal government agencies, it was because he'd seen Rufo appear on Fox News. Rufo has been so successful in getting his message out to legislators, in fact, that even some conservatives have wondered whether the anti-CRT backlash might itself be assuming an anti-liberal character in some cases. After all, it's one thing to argue against progressive ideas, it's another thing to use laws to block their expression in certain contexts. I spoke to Christopher Rufo last week by Skype about these ideological tensions. Here are excerpts from our conversation. So we spoke on the Quillette podcast uh, back in the summer of 2020. The subject then was uh, something you'd written about homelessness, which I know is, has always been a big policy issue for you. And uh, <laughs> a lot has happened to you in the last year. I, I distinctly remember that when we set up that interview a year ago, it was like very straightforward, but now it's, you know, <laughs> more secretaries and publicists and stuff. Your stock has really taken off. How many interviews do you do every week? Well, you know, I've had to actually put a hard cap on it. I try only to schedule two interviews per day. So I turn down, you know, 
90% or so of what comes in. And, you know, it's been a blessing. And I love talking to people. I love engaging with people. I love debating people on the other side. To me, if I could just do interviews all day, I would be happy. Uh, but then I wouldn't be actually creating the content and doing the research and writing the pieces that are the foundation of what I'm doing. How much of that, I want to say, quantum shift in your stature is owed to the fact that someone in the Trump administration saw what you were doing and basically made your research the basis for, if I remember correctly, I think it was an executive order about the content of educational materials to bureaucrats. Is that right? Yeah, very close. So last summer, I did a series of investigative reports on critical race theory in federal agencies, everything ranging from you know, the Department of Homeland Security to the FBI to the Treasury Department and even the National Nuclear Weapons Laboratory. Under the guise of diversity trainings, these really egregious, divisive materials. And I did this series of reports and I had the chance to go on Tucker Carlson and to share one of his opening monologues uh, with Tucker. And, you know, this, I'm told, rarely happens in politics, but the stars were aligned. And actually the president, then President Trump, uh, was watching the segment and then instructed his team to contact me the next day. Um, and then they asked for my research, my opinion, some of my uh, materials that I had put together. And within three weeks, it had gone from a Tucker Carlson segment to a signed, sealed, and delivered executive order that really was the beginning, kind of first big break on this story, this national story about critical race theory. I'm going to push back a little on the idea that it's a coincidence that Trump was watching Fox. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but let me ask you about that, because I know you're, you're a serious person. Does it bother you that, that the vector for this came through Tucker Carlson, who, who occasionally says some, like, to me, pretty batty things? And, and let's face it, Donald Trump, even if you're a conservative, he did a lot of reprehensible things. Look, if you're an activist, you want to take every avenue to publicize your cause. I get that. But do you have mixed feelings about the way that it happened through Tucker Carlson and through through Trump? No, not at all. I have, you know, really uniformly positive feelings about it. I'm an admirer of Tucker Carlson. I'm a, a fan of his work. I've uh, And, uh, you know, with President Trump, I didn't vote for him in 2016. I've said that many times publicly, uh, but I did vote for him in 2020. Here's the thing. It's like there's always some potential to qualify or to categorize something as a mixed feeling. But the reality is that I wanted to achieve an objective. Uh, and the way that you achieve objectives, if you're a conservative in the United States in 2021, is to go on the biggest media platforms. Tucker Carlson by far has the most dominant hour of television news in the country. And then you know, I made a direct appeal asking President Trump to take action by name. And uh, that's how you do it. And I think a lot of people in our world, in our business, make this distinction, I think a false distinction, between journalism and scholarship and activism and advocacy. And to me, we want to be effective in the world. We want to do substantive work, of course. We want to base our, our own personal work on good research, good substance, good reporting. But I also want to be effective in the world. And I want to use whatever avenues are necessary. And when you have the chance to actually ask the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, to shift policy a bit towards your direction, you know, I, I would do so unapologetically. I would do so for President Biden. I doubt he'd listen. That's just how it works. 
You know, it'd be super ironic if it turned out that Joe Biden was like a Quillette podcast addict. <laughs> and <laughs> and he was telling his assistants, oh, man, I heard this great guy on the Quillette podcast. <laughs> so uh, I read a New Yorker profile of you, and I thought it was quite torqued against you. Surprise, surprise. And the headline they put on it was ridiculous. But there actually was a lot of interesting stuff in that profile, including the fact, I didn't know this, you're the son of Italian immigrants. One thing I found is that a lot of the people who read Quillette, who listen to the podcast, a disproportionate number of them are either immigrants or children of immigrants who have maybe a deeper appreciation for, call it classical liberalism, and reject some of the anti-liberal fads you see on campuses and in, in the progressive sector of politics. Do you see a connection there? For all I know, your parents are out of Marxist. I, don't, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, my, my own family background is kind of interesting. Actually, my, my grandfather and then my you know, aunts and uncles who still live in Italy are actually all communists. I mean, <laughs> you know, they call it, no, really, I mean, not, not, I'm not, not an epithet. They're kind of Gramscian communist intellectuals and still committed to that. They've rebranded as the Democratic Party of the left in Italy. Uh, but it is really a kind of communist framework that they subscribe to. Um, and obviously now we, we, we disagree on politics. But I, I think what I've learned, you know, that's my family background, make of it what you will. But what I've learned in my reporting, talking to Chinese immigrants, Russian immigrants, Eastern European immigrants, you know, Latin American immigrants that have emigrated from communist and socialist countries, these folks are often on the front lines fighting against critical race theory. Uh, they're often the ones who are really sounding the alarm in places like San Francisco Bay Area, in Northern Virginia, in Los Angeles, in New York City even, because they've seen what these ideologies can do to human beings. They see how something like critical race theory, when you strip it down to its essentials, shares many of those same impulses and ideas and even solutions as ideologies that ruined their home countries, stripped people of their basic dignities, and plunged these societies into darkness. Here in Canada, some of my newer friends and followers, uh, a lot of them are Muslims. A lot of them come from Iran. They fled the revolution there, the 1979 revolution. And uh, they'll say to me, and they'll say to the public on Twitter, says, look, I, I didn't flee one theocratic revolution so that I could get swept up in another here in North America with a bunch of progressives telling me I got to get woke. Uh, they recognize the telltale signs of social panic mm. and forced ideological indoctrination. In fact, I've actually seen some bridge building between Jews and Muslims on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. It's really been kind of a beautiful thing to see. And I think that on the a point about Muslims, I interviewed a woman in Portland, in the Portland, Oregon area, who was an uh, immigrant from Iran. And she was telling me, you know, I grew up in, in Tehran chanting death to America every day before school. And I feel like my daughter, you know, we escaped that system, we escaped that theocracy. And I feel like my daughter is going through not the same thing, but it's giving me that same feeling, the feeling of indoctrination, the feeling of uh, uh, hatred of the United States. And and what I'm seeing is a huge political shift where my greatest allies, obviously, you know, Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump were, were, were crucial allies for me in the beginning of this fight. But I think now a lot of my closest and strongest and frankly, most effective allies are people who are not traditional conservatives. They're people on the center left, they're center left liberals. 
in in very left leaning places like New York and L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago. Uh, Asian Americans have taken the lead. You have a lot of African Americans now speaking out against critical race theory. Um, you have people from uh, born and bred in the United States and people who are recent immigrants, and you have this coalition that's that's forming that is shifting the typical and and maybe traditional political boundaries and political alliances. And I think that's great. I think it's really stimulating for me to assemble this coalition of people that we all share these values and commitments, even if on many other issues, we come from opposite points of view. Also because of some of the gender stuff, you actually see people who conservatives would have dismissed as militant lesbians 10 or 15 years ago who are on the righteous side of the, the gender war. It's, it is definitely a time for strange political bedfellows. And <laughs> this, this New Yorker article, I'm going to come back to it, because it, it was written in this kind of weird way. At, at the beginning of it, it talked about where you get a lot of your source material, where it talks about how, because of the pandemic, a lot of meetings, and I would call them indoctrination sessions, they take place on Zoom calls where it's very easy for people to record stuff. It used to be maybe you'd get your sensitivity training in a room and um, difficult to record it, even if you wanted to. Now, if somebody is giving you the, the gospel according to uh, Candy over Zoom, it's really easy to record it and send it to someone like you. And this, this New Yorker author seemed to kind of resent it, like, oh, because of this technology, they have the goods on us. A few scoops we've had at Quillette, including a few I've written, have been based on that. Do you worry that with the end of the pandemic, some of your source material is going to dry up? Because, I mean, some of your best pieces have been based pretty much on people just kind of flipping you a movie file. Yeah, no, I, I'm not worried about that at all because corporations and public schools and large institutions, they always leave a paper trail. And I found that actually the most effective communication methods aren't, aren't actually video and audio, although sometimes those can be quite damning. It's actually... PDFs and Word documents and PowerPoint presentations. It's that actual raw documentation that exists everywhere. And, you know, I, I will say, and this is a kind of exclusive uh, that, that I haven't announced to the public, is that I've actually obtained all of the diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism files uh, for, I believe, 30 of the top Fortune 100 companies. And these are internally available that have been leaked to me externally. They're atrocious, as I think we'll see in the coming days as I start this new series. It's really a target-rich environment for someone who wants to fight against this stuff, because it seems to be everywhere. Well, you say it's not slowing down, except that you have created a few cautionary tales. There was one case, what was it? It was America's Atomic Agency, I think. Was it Los Alamos that was doing this thing about toxic masculinity or something? Yeah, their, their sister laboratory, the uh, Sandia National Labs. And you identified it and published the goods, Within a pretty short period of time, they were forced to backtrack. I mean, I guess the proof of how unpopular and cultish this stuff is, is that as soon as it's published widely, people are outraged by it, which would not be true of like generic basic material that says, don't be sexist, don't be racist, don't be a prick. Like if you publish that, no one would care. Yeah. There's been a number of these scenarios. You've been at the heart of a lot of these disclosures. Isn't it the case that in a lot of conference rooms, people are saying, look, if, if we persist down this path, we're going to get roofed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. School administrators have been whispering, you know, don't get caught by Chris Rufo, we have to be careful and hide what we're doing, uh, which I find funny. But yeah, we, we have had some big successes. Obviously, we've we've passed uh, state legislation and in six states, and, and hopefully that number will increase, protecting tens of millions of Americans from critical race theory, indoctrination, and state-sanctioned racism in public schools. 
But also even on the corporate side, I actually exposed Lockheed Martin Corporation for forcing white male executives to denounce their white male privilege and their uh, internalized whiteness, what have you. They were actually put under a Senate investigation from Senator Tom Cotton. They were forced to really backtrack. I also exposed the Walt Disney uh, Company, and they initially tried to defend themselves. They actually and preposterously put out a statement that said, we can't possibly be racist because we made Black Panther, <laughs> uh, which is like a corporate oh. PR equivalent of the Black Friend defense. But then within 48 hours, because we, I kept the pressure up, within 48 hours, they nuked their entire anti-racism program from their internal website, just deleting it for all employees. What's interesting about these companies is you expect, like if it were Ben and Jerry's or Lululemon, like, you know, I have the stereotypical vision of the fashion industry. And I've gone to some fashion industry galas and it's super woke or regional theaters and stuff, Broadway. But like Lockheed, <laughs> Lockheed Martin, they make weapon systems that are capable of killing millions of people. Is there any rhyme or reason or pattern to which companies are going in for this cult? Yeah, th th this is actually kind of a really interesting question. And I, I don't necessarily have, I haven't ne necessarily found an answer that completely satisfies me. Because on the face of it, it seems kind of absurd. You have, yeah, Lockheed Martin, defense contractors, large multinational corporations embracing these fashionable theories of intersectionality that make sense maybe in a college seminar. But so I think tentatively, a couple hypotheses, a couple things that I think may be at play. One is that these companies feel immense pressure. Uh, they feel like this is a defensive mechanism. It's almost an insurance policy against getting canceled or mobbed or denounced by the media or left-wing activists. They do this almost prophylactically to try to prevent some sort of uh, damage from occurring. And then I think there's also internal dynamics that I've seen within these companies where you have a small group of people, usually in departments, uh, kind of soft departments like HR, marketing, publicity, that you have a small group of true believers and they're able to use emotional arguments and often kind of manipulative arguments to essentially bully C-suite executives into accepting these programs. And then once they get a foothold, they're impossible to get rid of, they can only expand. And then third, I think structurally, my own kind of hypothesis is that in the last 20 years, we've educated a huge number of college graduates in grievance studies, in uh, race and gender ideology, in uh, critical theories. The old joke from conservatives was like, ha ha, look at these people, they're never going to be able to get jobs. But the actual truth of the matter is that they actually have created their own jobs as you know, microaggression investigator, diversity commissar. Michigan State University. Tens of millions of dollars a year on this stuff, right? I mean. Yeah, what was even more shocking, because I mean, universities blow money on all sorts of things. There was over a hundred people in their diversity department. Yeah. I think there were similar numbers for Ohio State. I mean, I've done stories on places like Haverford and Brandeis, and these aren't big schools. An academic department might only have five or six profs in some cases, but you'll, you know, you'll walk in to the student center and the diversity department, there's like 20 people working there. Let me ask you about this. You mentioned with pride that Senator Tom Cotton, who's a Republican, on the basis of, of your investigation of, of Lockheed Martin, huge government contractor, do you worry that there are maybe some McCarthyist overtones to this? Because I don't agree with the extreme formulation of critical race theory that's taught or that's implemented in a lot of companies. On the other hand, once you get government using the investigative powers to look at the training methods inside companies and stuff like that, 
that is kind of like no, McCarthy. No, I, 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 I really strongly disagree for two reasons. You know, first off, Lockheed Martin, for example, is not any company. It derives the vast majority of its revenues through government contracts. So it has a tight relationship with the federal government uh, and therefore should be subject to greater oversight. But even in principle, in a, as a general principle, companies, private companies in the United States can't violate the civil rights laws of this country. You can't do it. And these investigations into these practices are simply investigating whether or not these companies are violating existing civil rights laws. So it strikes me as odd that people would suggest that this is ideological in nature when the actual substance of these investigations is not to test ideological purity. Lockheed Martin, if they wanted to, could be a full-blown social justice company. They could promote you know, Antonio Gramsci to their employees. I would have no problem with that. Where I do have a problem is if they are perpetuating racial scapegoating, stereotyping, and discrimination uh, that is illegal. Well, careful about that Gramsci talk. It sounds like you're trying to get jobs for your relatives back in Italy. <laughs> Look, so I'm on your mailing list, right? So here's some subject lines. We're going to win the fight against CRT, that's critical race theory, standing against critical race theory, how to fight critical race theory, the case against critical race theory. I am suspicious of any doctrine that's tribalizing. Whenever anyone talks about whiteness and say, you know, the problem with our society is whiteness. And like, well, actually, we have a lot of problems in our society and reducing it to whiteness versus non-whiteness is tribalistic and, and racist. But you see people do that on the right and the left. Do you worry that by focusing so much attention on critical race theory, which again, in its militant variant, I probably oppose as much as you, do you worry you're creating a new kind of tribalism of, you know, the critical race theorists and their acolytes against everyone else? No, I, I guess tribalism exists, right? Tribalism, you can call it tribalism, you can call it political polarization. It exists for a good reason. We're a country that has two dominant political parties. They compete against one another. They have separate, they have different values, different priorities, different policies that they propose. So if you want to be effective in American politics, by how the structure of it works, you have to choose a side, make alliances with that side, advance your agenda through partnerships, communications, uh, research, policy proposals, and effective public persuasion. And then you have to motivate the public, the voters, parents in, in this example for critical race theory in schools. And eventually you have to motivate legislators. These are the people who set the rules, set the laws of the land. So this idea that you should reject political polarization, reject tribalism, not pick sides, try to be above the fray, in my mind, is maybe well-intentioned. It's maybe high-minded. It's maybe noble in some abstract sense, uh, but it's guaranteed to be ineffective. And my goal, and I'm very clear about this, people sometimes you know, beat up on me about it, but it's, I'm, I'm not hiding it, I'm very honest about it. I have a political objective. I have set clear desires for how I would like the world to be, and I'm gonna go after it through partnerships with people that are on my team. So you have to decide which one do you want. I don't think fence sitting uh, is gonna help because critical race theory is a totalizing ideology. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, 
stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast. I remember when we spoke a year ago, you brought a lot of stuff back to Marxism and, and it's absolutely true that Marxism remains a powerful influence on progressive thought. But one thing that makes me uneasy about that is when I look at some of the emerging allies in the fight against anti-liberal forms of progressive doctrine, even broader than, than critical race theory you're looking at, social panic over so-called whiteness, uh, some of the gender stuff, I've noticed that some of the most outspoken and imaginative critics of this hyper-progressive mania, a lot of them are actually Marxists, like traditional, sometimes they're older, they're socialists who still believe that class and income are the most important things and determine who's lucky and who's not in society. And I actually agree with a lot of what they say. Do you worry that with a lot of, with some of your rhetoric about Marxism, and I'm not saying you're not allowed to criticize Marx, but by bringing capitalism into it so much, isn't it important that we bring in some of the disaffected socialists and liberals and even, you know, self-declared Marxists into the struggle? No, I don't think so. I think that disaffected Marxists are maybe overrepresented on something like an academic campus, but make a such a fractional minority of voters, uh, uh, of the public. But they have more moral authority than you or I do to criticize the left. And some of them are former fellow travelers of these people who are spouting the woke nonsense. In, you know, in that sense, yeah. In that sense, I would agree. I mean, there's some utility to that. I'd be open. if Listen, I'm open to any alliance. If you want to work with me, I, I embrace you uh, uh, in the coalition if you're a disaffected Marxist. But I think that we, ha- we can't forget, though, that critical race theory is a Marxist ideology. It derives from critical theory, which is explicitly uh, Marxist. And even one of the founders of critical race theory, Richard Delgado, when he describes in an interview the first conference that established the discipline of critical race theory, he describes the group as a bunch of Marxists. I mean, they're not really, at the time they weren't hiding it, they're hiding it now because it's unpopular, but we should really not underestimate the Marxist core of critical race theory. And we should also not underestimate the critical race theorists' proposed solutions, uh, which in the case of many, perhaps most of the scholars, involves state control over the economy. It involves collectivist enterprise. It involves race-based redistribution of wealth and property. Uh, That's how they think they're going to achieve equality. Uh, And I just fundamentally and wholeheartedly disagree with it. We have the evidence from a century of Marxist regimes in the previous century. We should absolutely and categorically uh, reject that way of organizing society, of organizing the economy. A lot of these legislation initiatives at the state level to ban critical race theory from being taught in schools, you know, the laws vary, but 
The thing that concerns me most, though, is when teachers teach critical race theory in school, and I'm talking about like the militant formulation of critical race theory. Obviously, it bothers me that they're teaching this cultish stuff, but it bothers me more that they want to teach it, that it's considered a mainstream or they regard it as a mainstream pedagogical movement. If you ban it by law and make it a kind of language of dissent or a sort of forbidden knowledge or forbidden pedagogy, isn't that sort of a shortcut which doesn't get you anywhere? Shouldn't shouldn't the goal be through culture to convince people that these aren't good ideas as opposed to you're not allowed to teach them? No, you have to do both. And it's very important. And I think that this really strikes at a fundamental misperception. The fact is, is that we have publicly funded schools that operate as an educational monopoly in our country. Uh, This isn't a free marketplace of ideas. Uh, This public schools do not have First Amendment rights. And the fact is, is that the status quo, the, the existing state of affairs is that state legislatures get to decide what's in the curriculum and what's not in the curriculum. They get to decide what to include and what to exclude. And in many cases, they've state legislators have chosen to exclude things that conservatives would like, like maybe saying the Pledge of Allegiance or or prayer in schools or kind of celebratory histories. And then conservative legislatures have an equal right to say, we're going to exclude things that we don't like, like race essentialism, like collective guilt, like critical race theory. This is a basic function. When you have a public institution, the legislature is the vehicle that decide that decides how it functions, what materials it, it promotes, and what values and, and virtues uh, it includes in the curriculum. And I, I think that the idea that somehow this creates a forbidden knowledge or a kind of something very attractive for resisting misses the mark on two points. It misses the mark, first of all, because this is actually the dominant ideology in public education. This isn't resistance. This isn't rebellion. This isn't counterculture. This is the hegemonic culture of the institutions, of public school bureaucracies, of graduate schools of education, of teacher training programs, et cetera. And then second, public schools in the United States chose within their right to ban something like creationism. I don't think teenagers are hanging out under the bleachers, you know, reading critiques of Darwin. Oh, Chris, you are so out, you are so out of touch. I have kids and that's all they that's, talk about. That's, that's <laughs> all I do. But sometimes the, the best way to do something is just the most direct way. For legislators, basically for voters through their state legislators to say, this is what we want to teach and convey to our kids. This is what we don't want to teach and convey to our kids. And I think it's important for, for one reason, is that uh, critical race theory practice in education uh, does a couple things. It compels speech that violates the conscience of students, and it manipulates people as young as four and five years old into a racialist ideology that violates the sense of basic dignity. And, and you're taking vulnerable kids who are compelled to be in these state institutions. You have to offer them greater protections. Listen, if you want to teach critical race theory in higher education, I have no problem with that. What about private schools? Private schools, fine. If you want to teach critical race theory in your private school, hell, if you want to teach critical race theory in your public school in Brooklyn, New York, or Berkeley, California, I have no problem with that. If that's what voters want, if that's what parents want, if that's what the public wants, they're free to do so. We live in a pluralist society. I don't have to impose my values on them, but by the same token, they are not allowed to impose their values on me. That's how our society should work. That's the way to, if you want to think of it this way, to depolarize some of these fights and to provide people with the most freedom and opportunity to pursue their vision. You and I have both seen this 
crazy pedagogical plan in California where like you couldn't even understand half the stuff. It was written in this kind of progressive gobbledygook. So California is going way off the deep end. And then you've got red states, which are going in the opposite direction. This polarization is happening on the level of like education for 10 year olds. Maybe it's inevitable because of the world we live in, but but that's worrying, no? On a state by state level? It, it, it is. But I, I mean, that's how the United States works. And I think it's a system that I support. I think federalism is important. I think local control of the of the curriculum is important. And we're now experimenting as these curricula in the deepest blue states become radicalized in places where they're actually mandating the inclusion of critical race theory in the state curriculum in California, Oregon, Washington, Illinois. They're training teachers along the lines of these principles. They're embarking on an experiment that I think will ultimately fail, will ultimately harm children. But it's an experiment that they're entitled to embark on. And I may not like it. I may not personally support it. I advocate against it. But they're allowed to pursue their own vision, just like Texas, Idaho, Arkansas, New Hampshire, et cetera. The states that have banned these critical race theory principles in their school curricula are entitled to pursue theirs. And I think that the the real question, the real asymmetry is that somehow uh, the the narrative, really a mainstream narrative, is that it is okay for blue states to mandate the inclusion of critical race theory in their state curricula. That's not controversial. But somehow it's illegitimate or extremely controversial for red states to mandate the exclusion of those same principles. This strikes me as unfair, as illogical, as irrational, but I think it also speaks to the to the political playing field that is the reality. The reality is that the media institutions and the academic institutions in our country have no problem with things ratcheting left, but they absolutely flip out, freak out, go into full panic and meltdown when things seem to be shifting right. And in my work, I hope to change that dynamic. I hope actually to break that dynamic and show that it is that conservatives should stand up for their values, stand up for their principles, should be unafraid and unashamed to advocate for the best education for their kids. And now a commercial message from Skillshare, one of our sponsors for this episode of the Quillette podcast. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. If you're looking to develop your professional skill set, there's plenty of courses to choose from, including logos and branding, web development, film, and video. In my case, I've taken courses on Adobe Photoshop and used that knowledge to design some of the graphics you see on the Quillette website. Skillshare classes include a combination of video lessons and a class project, so you can apply what you've learned. Members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, most of which are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, Skillshare will help you experience real improvement with classes designed for real life in a supportive environment. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com Quillette and get a one-month free trial premium membership. That's S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E, Skillshare.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. It may surprise some listeners to know that I studied critical race theory when I was at law school in the 
early and mid-90s. Actually, it was in a course that was called Critical Legal Studies, and critical race theory was a component of it. The doctrine wasn't as far advanced as it is now in terms of some of the wingnut stuff about, like, as I said, whiteness and, you know, the Robin D'Angelo stuff, which demands that whites go around in a, in a state of constant self-flagellation and so forth. Rather, it was a little bit more focused on the actual real-life problems that black people faced. And there was some stuff we learned that really resonated with me. I was, I was a Canadian going to an American law school, so it was also an education in the way Americans talk about race. You know, one of the things, this is a well-known example, I'm sure you've heard it, that at the time, at least, the drug laws in the United States were such that the penalties were much more severe for crack cocaine than for powdered cocaine. And the explanation was because crack cocaine was primarily, at the time at least, a black drug, and powdered cocaine was more likely to be used by wealthier white people. And so the laws in question didn't make any mention of, of race, but effectively, these were laws that were racist. And there was a number of examples like that discussed in the class. You know, we would now call this, maybe at the time too, systemic racism, institutional racism, racism that doesn't announce itself as racism, but is effectively racist. Do you concede that there's a grain of truth to these claims, which at least, again, at the time, was kind of one of the, the main principles of critical race theory? Yeah, I, I think you're you're correct in your diagnosis and your observation that it's a very different field and discipline and set of concepts uh, now than it was in the 1990s. And sure, I mean, I, I read a lot of critical race theory for better or for worse, and there's there are certain ideas that I think are true, but I, I think what you're pointing out is the premise of critical race theory, right? So the premise is that America has a history of, and, and really every country, I think Canada included, America has a history of slavery, segregation, racism, and racial injustice. I mean, that's undoubtedly true. I, I don't know anyone that would disagree with that. But the problem is that critical race theorists often use that premise as a cudgel uh, to beat people into submitting to their conclusions. Their conclusions are we should abandon systems of individual rights, meritocracy, capitalism, colorblindness, free speech, the Constitution, etc. And those are radical conclusions that I disagree with wholeheartedly, even if I concede that some of their premises are true, are correct, are accurate. So I think the idea about you know systemic racism, that's that's an important point. I I I tend to think that systemic racism is real. For example, today, in a legal sense, there is systemic racism against Asian Americans in college admissions. That's a fact. That's a form of systemic uh, race-based discrimination. I also think that a lot of the policies, and I may, dis may be in disagreement with some of my friends on the right, a lot of the policies that we saw emerging in the 1960s through, anti through the anti-poverty policies of you know Lyndon Johnson era, I think those actually resulted in systemic racism. If you look at, for example, the outcomes uh, of those policies, even if they were well-intentioned, I think in many cases they made uh, situations uh, worse for people of all racial groups, but because of how poverty and race are correlated predominantly to African-Americans. I've documented that in a film for PBS, for example. So if I can, as a conservative, say that, well, I think systemic racism is, exists because X, Y, and Z, and a Critical race theorists can say, well, I think systemic racism exists because of A, B, and C, totally opposite perspectives. What's the validity of the concept? Or is it really just kind of an empty signifier uh, that we can kind of toss around as a political football, but doesn't actually reveal anything deep or profound or actionable about the world we live in? 
the New Yorker article, one of the interesting things they did is they reached out to Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who is a scholar, I believe she's now at Stanford? Columbia, I believe. Yeah, UCLA and Columbia Law School, right. Uh, she specializes in race and gender issues, and she is known in particular for creating the doctrine of intersectionality, and she was a leading scholar in the field of critical race theory. And they interviewed her for this New Yorker article. And and after she's introduced, you sort of expect like she's going to be all fire and brimstone about you and how can anyone oppose all this stuff that's going on. But she was actually a little bit more nuanced than that. And she, she basically said, yeah, some of the stuff that flies under the banner of critical race theory doesn't look so kosher to me. I got the sense, like if you and her were in the room together, I don't know that you'd agree on 50% of things, but you might agree on 10 or 20% of things. Have you ever met her or talked to her or or any of the, the handful of giants in the field of critical race theory who created it back in the late 20th century? Uh, I, you know, I haven't had direct uh, engagement, but I, I would love to. I'd be very much open to that. And I think your your reading of it is correct. I mean, Crenshaw, who actually coined the term critical race theory, is running away from anti-racism programs and critical race theory-based school curricula. Um, and I think that's significant when you have you know, the founder of the discipline looking at what that discipline has wrought in reality, not in academic journals, but in actual training modules, school curricula. It's very significant that they're actually running away from the, the outcomes of their own ideas. That I think they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a separation. They're trying to say, well, critical race theory theory is great. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's still valid. But critical race theory as praxis, uh, it, yeah, it looks wrong. It goes too far. It's not effective. But I, my argument is that at any critical theory, by the definitions of critical theory from people like Herbert Marcuse, theory and praxis are inseparable. So the implementation of critical race theory is innately and inextricably linked to its theory. So I think Crenshaw and others are starting to run away from it. Uh, but I'm not going to let them run away from it because I think that they have to actually reckon with and actually grapple with the consequences of their ideas. Well, you know, maybe in some future podcasts, we can get Kimberly Williams Crenshaw and you on the same show. And maybe, uh, maybe our regular listener, Joe Biden, can help set it up. <laughs> yeah. Joe, if you're listening, <laughs> take action. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would love that. And, and I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate even our points of disagreement because this is what we need. We need structured and constructive disagreement across different ideas, across different disciplines, that will make us all better. Christopher Rufo is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He also has a film out called America Lost, which you can see for free at americalostfilm.com. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.